0: Good morning. Good morning. We're going to begin this morning in the Gospel of Luke chapter 2. While well, you're finding that, this morning we're going to do a, it's something a little bit different. We're going to talk about some things that you can do to grow in your Christian life. Now start by looking at Luke chapter 2, one verse, verse number forty. <clears throat> and the child, Jesus, grew and became strong in spirit, filled with wisdom, and the grace of God was upon him. I want to talk to you this morning about growing in Christ. And growing is something that Physical growth is a natural process. A baby is born. They eat. They sleep. They play. As you grow up, you uh, go to work. You eat. You sleep. You play. And that physical growth that takes place from being a baby to being an adult, the aging process that takes place after you hit your peak somewhere in your 20s, Um That's all very natural. You don't have to work at it. It's going to happen whether you like it or not. The years are going to catch up to you. The spiritual growth is a little bit different. The Bible calls it sanctification. It's a process, just like physical growth happens over time. There's two things that happen here. God is doing a work in us when we trust in the Lord Jesus. Philippians 1.6 tells us, He who has begun a good work in you will complete it. So God has his part. He does some of the work. He does the lion's share of the work. Gradually chipping away everything that doesn't look like the Lord Jesus Christ. But we have a part too. We can choose to do things that help our spiritual growth, Or we can choose to do things that don't help it. In fact, that might get in its way. The things we do are referred to sometimes as habits. And the reason I want to call them habits today is because habits that we cultivate can aid our spiritual growth. And today we're going to look at seven habits it result in spiritual growth and a godly life. Now, I'll be skipping around the scriptures as I go through these. Each one is kind of a mini-message. Each one could be a message on its own. And a disclaimer right up front, I did not go through and pick all these out. This comes; These seven habits come from a sermon by the late Charles Stanley. I heard it many years ago. I wrote all this stuff down I was so impressed with it, I've kept it with me all these years where I can look at it and refresh my memory about what I'm supposed to be doing. So let's go ahead and do some definitions first before we get started. What exactly is a habit? A habit is a recurring and often subconscious pattern of behavior that is acquired through constant repetition. Or frequent repetition. Now, notice three things here. One, it is acquired, it is not a naturally occurring thing. It's not something that you do. I mean, we all eat. And that is something that, you know, we'll do unless we can't find food. We do eat. But these habits that I'm talking about are not necessarily naturally occurring, they're things that we have to choose to do until they become habits. To acquire those habits, you continually repeat, repeat, and repeat. And what happens is it becomes automatic. You no longer choose to do it, you just do. I mean, somebody might even say to you, you're, you're doing that. And you go, oh, I am? You don't even realize it anymore. So that's a Habit. Now what about a godly life? What should we be striving for? What are we growing to get to? I think Paul defines it best in Galatians chapter 2 and verse 20. It says, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Again, three things here. Notice that the I is dead. Crucified with Christ, it is no more. Christ lives in and through the believer. He lives in you in the form of the Holy Spirit. And our surrender to Him day by day is by faith. By believing. So given those two things, what a habit is and what the goal is, let's look at seven habits for Christian growth in a godly life. The first one is prayer. I'm going to skip around a lot in the scriptures today, so rather than try to take time and turn to everything, if you want, I'll send you the notes afterwards. I'm just going to read them for you. Jesus prayed very often. In Mark one thirty-five. it says, Now in the morning, having risen a long while before daylight, he went out and departed to a solitary place, and there he prayed. Now that in itself doesn't sound too remarkable, but if you read Mark chapter 1, you realize this verse comes after one of the busiest recorded days in the life of the Lord Jesus. He taught in the synagogues, cast out demons, healed the sick, and had the whole city gathered at his door for ministry. That's a busy day. And yet after a very brief rest, he got up before daylight and went off to pray. You wonder why Jesus would pray. I mean, he is God, after all. And yet the scripture records that before selecting the twelve apostles, he went and prayed through the night. Us as individuals need to develop the habit of prayer. Paul tells us in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 to pray without ceasing. That is the will of God in Christ Jesus for us, that along with rejoicing and giving thanks. So what happens when you have a decision to make? Is the first thing that comes to mind who do I call or what do I do? Notice the I. What do I do? But what about committing it to the Lord in prayer? Isn't that the first thing we should do? It doesn't have to be much. I mean, one of the best prayers I know is one word you just kind of go help and he knows what you mean in his prayer in his book prayer the great adventure david jeremiah writes this it is impossible for us to do or to be anything that god wants us to do or be apart from spending time in the prayer closet It's a habit that each one of us needs as individuals. And what we need even more is for that habit to carry over into our corporate body. The church needs to be a praying body. A church that doesn't pray is going to be a weak church. Look at the apostles in the book of Acts. Acts 2.42 says, And they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship, in the breaking of bread, and in prayers. Prayers, plural. Notice it says they continued. They didn't stop. Steadfastly. They were serious about this. The story in Acts chapter 12. Peter in the prison. He's in the prison. The church is a bunch of ragtag working people. They have no influence in this society. They have no hope of influencing anybody to get him released. And yet we read in verse 5 of Acts 12, constant prayer was offered to God for him by the church. Not once in a while, not on Sundays and Wednesdays, it says constant prayer was offered by him. Constant. What was the result? Well, his chains fell off, the prison doors were opened, the gates were opened, and he walked out. How did that happen? And when he was released, he went directly to the house of Mary. The Bible tells us where many were gathered together praying. So the early church prayed and prayed and prayed. They prayed Peter right out of prison. Charles Haddon Spurgeon said this regarding prayer in and for the church. Prayer in the church is the steam engine which makes the wheels revolve and really does the work, and therefore we cannot do without it. So our first habit that we want to develop is individual and corporate prayer. We want to make sure that we do this all the time without even thinking about it. The next one we come to is faith. seems like a simple enough word. Psalm 103.19 says, The Lord has established His throne in heaven and His kingdom rules over all. I am not in control. You are not in control. God is in control. And when it says overall, it means just that. There's nothing going on that He doesn't control, one way or another. Another way to say that is nothing is out of God's control. A lot of things are out of my control. Faith is just believing what God has told you. I am in control. William MacDonald defines it this way. He says, Faith is confidence in the trustworthiness of God. It is a conviction that what God says is true and that what he promises will come to pass. Now you can't talk about faith without going to Hebrews chapter 11. Maybe we'll take a look at Hebrews chapter 11, the first three verses. Hebrews chapter 11, beginning in verse 1, if I get there. Now faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. For by it the elders obtained a good testimony. By faith we understand that the worlds were framed by the word of God, so that the things which are seen were not made of things which are visible. Things hoped for are just vapor until faith puts the meat on the bones. We have to believe all the promises in the Bible. Faith sees evidence where no faith sees nothing at all. I had a guy riding with me once when I was doing a courier job for the hospital. And we just listened to David Jeremiah and we were talking a little bit about God and he said, well, I see no evidence anywhere that there is a God. And I thought to myself, How sad. It's all around you, and you don't see it. But that's what happens when you have no faith. You don't see it. Faith gives us the confidence to testify to the truth of God's Word. and By faith we understand that God created everything that we see by the word of His mouth out of nothing else. Hebrews 11.6 will tell us, But without faith it is impossible to please him, for he who comes to God must believe that he is, and that he is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. Faith needs an object. If one persists in unbelief, there can't be any faith. The faith that pleases God believes that there is a triune God who controls everything. Seeking Him diligently, not haphazardly, by faith is pleasing to Him. Faith focuses on God and believing His promises, dismissing the false promises of this world. Now the question comes up, how can faith be a habit? You know, A lot of people would say, well, I think mean, you have it or you don't. How is it a habit? Well, How many times a day do you find yourself worrying about something? You see, worry takes the place of faith. Those who worry think it depends on them and they don't know what to do. Those who have faith do what they can and commit the rest to God and go on about their lives. As Romans 5 says, they have peace with God. Peace with God. So faith needs to be a habit. You need to replace worry with faith. So that's two. The third one, meditate on the Word of God. Meditating on the Word is something that God commands us to do. He told Joshua, in Joshua 1, verse 8, This book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate in it day and night, that you may do observe to do according to all that is written in it. For then you will make your way prosperous, and then you will have good success. Joshua had the five books of Moses to meditate on. We have 66 books of the Bible to consider. And to meditate means to ponder, to weigh, to revolve around and study God's Word. It's making the words of your mouth God's words or in agreement with His words. It's not a once-and-done activity. It continues throughout your day and on into the night. It is not an academic exercise to sharpen the intellect. It is so you can live all your life according to the word of God. God has attached promises to those who have the habit of meditating on his word. He told Joshua he would be prosperous and have good success. Now to Joshua that may have meant material success, I would propose that as you meditate on the Word of God, you get peace with God once again. The Bible says, When I remember you on my bed, I meditate on you in the night watches. You know, if you memorize God's Word, then those sleepless nights when you're laying in bed, you can't fall asleep, you can begin to call back to mind those verses. Sometimes I'll even, you know, just kind of say them, moving my lips, not out loud. Or Kathy says to me, "You're keeping me awake," um, but it helps to just meditate on those words that you've memorized in the night watches. Psalm one says, "But his delight." is in the law of the Lord, and in his law he meditates day and night. The hymn in these verses is the man who is blessed because of the way he conducts himself. And he delights in the law. We don't just read it as an obligation, but we look at this as something we enjoy, something we delight in. And we'll spend time on it. We'll read it. We'll memorize it. We'll recite it. And by doing that, we'll understand it more and more and truly enjoy it. It may start out as a chore. Many of these habits will start out as conscious choices and you'll say, Boy, I've got a lot of work to do. But it becomes a delight. It becomes a highlight of your day. It becomes automatic. Number four, obedience. In his essay on prayer and obedience, E.M. Bounds wrote this, Unquestionably, obedience is a high virtue, a soldier quality. To obey belongs preeminently to the soldier. It is his first and last lesson, and he must learn how to practice it all the time, without question, uncomplainingly. Obedience, moreover, is faith in action and the outflow of it is the very test of love. Notice the qualities in this little quote. It's constant all the time, recurring. It's not just a one-time thing. You're always obedient to God. Automatically, without question, without hesitation. And obedience is without grumbling or complaining. It's not coerced and it's not resented. God's word says, Now it shall come to pass if you diligently obey the voice of the Lord your God to observe carefully all his commandments which I command you today, that the Lord your God will set you high above all nations of the earth. That was God's promise to the nation Israel in Deuteronomy chapter 28 and verse 1. It attaches some material and earthly rewards to the motive for obedience. And the later verses in this same chapter will specify the consequences for disobedience. But that was Israel. In the New Testament, Jesus said, If you love me, keep my commandments. You see, he flipped the motive for obedience from earthly rewards that we can touch, feel, see, to simply love for him. Just love for him. Jesus made many promises to those who believe in him and follow him and obey him. And all of those promises will come to pass. But the primary motivator for the Christian is love of the Lord Jesus. A conscious awareness of His presence at all times should cause us to obey His commands without question, without complaining, simply because we love Him. Growing in Christ means we start out seeking Him and searching Searching His Word to see what is expected of us and what we are to obey. The more we practice obedience, the more He will reveal to us and the greater will become our obedience. And the goal is for obedience to be a habit, something we do without even thinking about it. Number five, dependence on the Holy Spirit. You know, in the income tax code, there's a test for whether or not somebody is a dependent of another. You have to figure out five things. What's their relationship to you? Like, you know, the the person, parent and child. You have to look at their age. Some people are too old, unless certain circumstances apply. They have to live with you for more than half of the year. Most of the time, but there's exceptions. You can't provide more, they can't provide more than half of their own support. You have to provide more than half. And they can't file a certain kind of tax return or joint return. Well, with exceptions, you get the idea. These are tests with a whole bunch of exceptions, more exceptions than there are to the rule. And it's very complicated to figure out dependence. But in God's Word, dependence on the Holy Spirit is much simpler. The Spirit dwells in every believer the moment they believe. Jesus promised the Comforter would come. He said in John 15, But when the Helper comes, whom I shall send to you from the Father, the Spirit of Truth who proceeds from the Father, he will testify of me. Every believer is sealed with the Spirit when they believe. In Him you also trusted after you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, in whom also, having believed, you were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise. Ephesians 1.13 Since we have the Holy Spirit, and remember He is the third person of the Trinity, we are to depend on Him. Ephesians 5.18 says, And do not be drunk with wine in which is dissipation, but be filled with the Spirit. Now that word filled carries with it the idea of being filled to the full with no room for anything else. The Holy Spirit needs to be the only thing in us that controls and affects our behavior. Anything else will not produce fruit in accordance with God's word or his will for us. Now in this verse, wine is used as kind of a universal example of something that can take control and cause us to behave in ways not pleasing to the Lord. But it could just as well be drugs, alcohol, sex, money, or anything else that takes control of your behavior or comes between you and God. Those things grieve the Holy Spirit. Israel gave up worshiping the true God and worshiped false gods. And God used Assyria and Babylon to discipline the nation. We are specifically warned in the New Testament, 1 Thessalonians 5.19 says, do not the Spirit. So we're to depend on that Spirit. We're to be obedient to it. We're to follow it. We're to nurture it within us. Number six. We're getting down to the end here. Giving to God and others. Give and it will be given to you. Good measure pressed down, shaken together, and running over will be put into your bosom. For with the same measure that you use, it will be measured back to you. Luke 6.38 This verse comes at the end of a section that begins with a command to love your enemies. Some use this verse to preach a prosperity gospel. The more you give, the more you get back. That's not what this discussion is about. This discussion is all about spiritual things. The rewards it talks about are spiritual rewards, not material rewards. Most people think of money when they think of giving. God already owns all the money. Your money is not going to make him any richer. God wants you. In Romans 12:1 he says, "Present your bodies a living sacrifice. God wants your time, your talents, your gifts, and yes your money. But he wants it because he wants you to learn how to give him what is his in the first place. He wants you to learn how to sacrifice for others, for him. God gives us some practical advice about giving in His Word. 1 Corinthians 16.2, He says, On the first day of the week, let each one of you lay something aside, storing up as he may prosper, that there be no collections when I come. I can see three principles in that one verse. First, our giving is to be scheduled. It's not to be haphazard, whenever we kind of feel like giving something. Paul specifies the first day of the week, but it could be any day you choose. could be any interval that you choose. Every other week, every month. The point is choose a system and stick to it. Don't just give when you feel like it or when you have a little extra or, you know, I'm not doing anything today so I think I'll do something for God. That's not how it works. God comes first. The second thing is the amount should be reserved for God, whatever you're going to do. If your gift is money, set God's money aside before you start spending so you don't get to the end and find out that you have nothing left to give. Set it aside first. If it's time you're giving, make God a priority in your schedule so that you don't run out of time. If it's a talent or a gift, make it a point to practice and hone that gift, that talent. Be at your best when you give it to God. And your gift should be proportional to what you have been given. The more God gives you, the more you give back. Giving is also very important to our spiritual growth. And here we've gone and talked about six things. We've talked about prayer, we've talked about faith, meditating on the Word, obedience, dependence, and giving. We come to the last one, and this is probably the most difficult one of the seven. The one that we all struggle with, and I say we because I struggle with it as much as anybody else. The seventh habit of a godly life of a growing Christian is forgiving other people. Ephesians four thirty two says, and be kind to one another, tender hearted, forgiving one another even as God in Christ forgave you. You know, no one in this world is more forgiven than a Christian. When I think back, I wasn't saved till I was 23. When I think back over some of the things I did as a young man before I was saved, I think, and God wiped all that out in an instant. He forgave it all, And he'll remember it no more. Wow. Before we get into what it is, let's look at what forgiveness is not. It's not a feeling, it's a decision. It's not an emotional high or low that you feel, it's something that you choose to do. It's not the same as forgetting. Forgetting about something is what happens with the passage of time. It just fades from your memory. It doesn't mean you can't remember it. It means it just, with the passing of time, it goes away. That's not forgiveness. And it's not excusing it. You don't look at it and say, well, oh, that's just so and so, that's what they do. Or, you know, oh well. No big deal. We'll just forget about that. No, that's not how it works. If it's wrong, if it's offensive, it's not okay. And you don't excuse it. Forgiveness is a decision. When someone sins against you or offends you, you decide to forgive or not to. Now, there's two Greek words in the Bible that are translated forgive. One of them is the word aphiomai. It means to release, remit, abandon, or cancel a debt. It's used in Matthew 6.12 when the Lord is teaching his disciples how to pray and he says, forgive us our debts. They're canceled. Release us from the penalty or cancellation of debt. It's done at a cost to the one who's doing the releasing. Our forgiveness cost God his only begotten son. That's how he was able to forgive our sins. Now there's another Greek word, charizomai. And that means to be bestowed in kindness or granted as a free Favor. This is the word that's translated forgive in Ephesians four thirty two. You see, while God's forgiveness cost him a great price, his only begotten son, he offers it to us at a free as a free gift. No cost. He forgives us. So forgiveness is to release from a penalty and And it's given freely. No strings attached. When you choose not to forgive someone, you begin to build up walls. You build walls between you and the offender. Unforgiveness is like a cancer. It grows and grows until it is all-consuming and overshadows life itself. And it sucks the life out of the body of Christ. The scripture says, if I regard iniquity in my heart, the Lord will not hear. That's a pretty severe penalty for unforgiveness. The Lord will not hear me. Don't hang on to an offense. Don't back away from dealing with it. Deal with sin. Forgive. has severe consequences if you don't. Now that we know what forgiveness is and what it is not, I'm going to give you some practical steps for how forgiveness works out in practice. And again, I will preface this by saying I took this from Ken Sandy's book, The Peacemaker. Very good book. And if you want to read in detail about forgiveness... I highly recommend it. It's one of the best treatments of the subject I've ever heard, ever read. When you forgive someone, truly forgive them, you're going to make four promises. Number one, I will not think about this incident. Number two, I will not bring up this incident again and use it against you. Number three, I will not talk to others about this incident And number four, I will not allow this incident to stand between us or hinder our personal relationship. It's a pretty tall order. Now ideally, forgiveness comes when someone repents of their sin. That's how God forgave us, right? We repented of our sin... And we came to him. What if someone does not repent of their sin? Well, there's such a thing as Ken Sandy calls a positional forgiveness. And that is the first promise. Because promise number one I will not think about this incident. That is a promise you make between you and God. You say to God, I'm not going to think about it. You can do this even if the other person does not repent. Because thinking about it, just like meditating on the Word of God can bring you great peace, I'll tell you, meditating on an offense can bring you great turmoil. So you can decide not to think about it. And that's a promise between you and God. And it puts you in the position to extend love and mercy to that person when they do repent. Now the Lord Jesus did that. The Lord Jesus, on the cross, with His arms outstretched, said, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they do. There were a lot of unrepentant sinners at the cross. But Jesus stretched out His arms, and said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. He said, I'm ready to receive them when they come. That's how we have to be, whether they repent or whether they don't. We have to be ready to receive them when they do. Now, to complete the transaction of forgiveness, you have the other three promises. And if you look at them, they don't make much sense if the offending party has not repented of their sin. Depending on the severity of the sin, you may need to confront someone about it. And if they still do not repent, you may need to approach them with two or three others as outlined in Matthew 18. I'll tell you something, if you ever have to do that, Pray, pray, pray that you don't have to get to that third step or you bring it before the church. Because I've been involved in that, and when you have somebody put up for discipline before the church, it's ugly, folks. All way around it. Pray that that never happens. But when the offender does repent, now the other three promises can kick in never bring it up again never talk to anybody else and never allow it to stand between you but if you really think about it that's that's really hard really hard to do it's easy for me to say but it's hard to do so there you have seven things you can do habits that you can develop that will cause you to grow in Christ. That will cause you to have a much greater peace with God. That will overcome those anxious moments in your life. Remember, the Bible says be anxious for nothing. So if you're anxious, think about these seven things. Think about which one you might be missing. You'll probably find that you're missing at least one of them, and that's why you're anxious. Let's commit our time to the Lord in prayer. Our Heavenly Father, we thank You once again that You've given us Your Word. That you've given us such wonderful guidance that we can follow. That You lead us and guide us by the power of Your Holy Spirit. We thank You for the great forgiveness that we have. Forgiveness of all our sins. Father, we pray this morning for those who could not be with us. Pray that you would uplift them and hold them up by the power of your mighty right hand. We thank you, Lord, that we've had this time together to worship you and to look to your word. Father, we give thanks for the food we'll partake of downstairs. And we pray all things in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.